Father, we do thank you that your grace is greater than all our sin. We thank you that Christ has purchased that for us at the cross of Calvary by living a righteous life in our place. And he went to that cross bearing our sins, the sins of his people. And there he was treated as a sinner, even though he was righteous, the only righteous one who ever lived. But he died in the place of sinners so that we, if we trust in him, can be made whiter than snow, can be counted as righteous, uh, not because we have any righteousness of our own, but because you have credited the righteousness of your son to our account. Lord, we thank you for this glorious gospel. Help us to preach it to ourselves daily, to daily remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and so that we will be prepared to share that hope with others, to give a reason for the hope that, that the world sees that we have. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen that hope, that you would establish that hope within us today as we go to your word, as we read about the resurrection of our Savior and what his resurrection has accomplished for us. Lord, prepare our hearts to hear what your word has to tell us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're returning to the passage that we looked at last week, which is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. So turn there, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Each and every one of us has goals in life. There are things that we want to see accomplished, and these goals that we have motivate us to live in a certain way, to do certain things. We know that the goals that we have won't come about unless we work to accomplish those goals. And those goals can be very short-term, they can be very long-term, or they can be something in between. When you think about it, even the mundane things that we do in life are done with a goal in view. For example, I try to brush my teeth every day, and I don't do it because I enjoy it. I do it because I'm trying to hang on to the teeth God gave me as long as I can before they fall out of my head. Also, I don't want to put my wife in a coma if she smells my breath. But I brush my teeth with a goal in view, even a mundane thing, thing like that. And if being motivated by goals, even in the mundane things in life, is true, how much more is it true with the big events that happen in our lives? 
when we get married or we get a job or we have kids. There are certain things that we want to see happen as a result of those big events. And those goals that we have, they can either be very selfish or they can be very selfless or a mixture, but they are goals either way. And it's no less the case in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When God raised Jesus from the dead, do we realize that he had a certain goal in mind that he wanted to accomplish through that? And the goal that God has in having raised Jesus from the dead is to be our ultimate goal as well. There is to be a great so that that drives everything we do as believers. As Christians, we are to live so that a certain goal will come about. And that goal, that something that we are living for, is to be the same something that God had in mind when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And as we go through this message, by the end of it, you're going to find out what that something is, what that great so that is to be in your life, what the purpose of your life as a believer is to be. We're going to find that out. So don't go to sleep. Try to listen. Last week, we looked at the expectation of the resurrection. We saw that in verses 20 through 22 of this chapter. We saw Paul explain why it is true that the dead are raised. He told us that the resurrected Christ is the first fruits of believers who have died. And what that meant, we saw, was that his resurrection is a pledge. It is an assurance of a future resurrection for Christ's people. And the reason why Paul is dead certain that Christ's people will be raised is because, as we saw last week, it's because of the relation in which Christ stands to his people. As Adam stood as the representative of his people, so Jesus Christ stands as a representative of his people. As Adam goes, falling into sin and death, so his people go. And as Christ goes, living a righteous life, paying for the sins of his people, and rising from the dead, so Christ's people will go. Because Jesus rose from the dead, his people will rise from the dead. The righteousness of Christ has been credited to his people's account, and because of Christ being our representative, his reality will be our reality. That is why Paul can be certain that Christ's people will be raised from the dead. So that was the expectation of the resurrection that we saw last week. Then we began looking at the order of the resurrection. And the passage, or the verses that pertain to that are verses 23 through 27a. And last week we made it through verse 23 and 24. In verse 23, we saw how there is an order to the resurrection. Who's raised first in that order? Christ. First, Christ is raised, which, if you're a believer, you know that has already happened. Second in that order is his people. Christ is raised, then his people will be raised. And it is that second in that sequence, that second resurrection that we are waiting for, the resurrection of his people. At the end of verse 23, it says that that resurrection 
the resurrection of Christ's people will occur when? What does verse 23 say? When will that occur? At his coming. At his coming. When he returns to establish his worldwide earthly reign. That future coming of Christ is recorded for us in the Apostle John's prophecy in the book of Revelation. We looked at chapter 20 last week. We read that whole chapter. And the Old Testament describes that future second coming of Christ as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And it's somewhat of a figurative expression because the day of the Lord doesn't refer to simply a 24-hour period. It's talking about a period of time that extends a little longer than that. But it's still a very short span of time. And the day of the Lord is when Christ will put down his enemies and establish his kingdom upon the earth. Now there's different interpretations that believers hold about what will occur at the second coming of Christ, but the view that I believe to be most faithful to Scripture is this. A straightforward reading of what the Bible says about that coming day, such as you see in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, reveals that the day of the Lord will be a time of severe tribulation. And it will be a time period that stretches for about seven years. And just prior to that future time of tribulation, Christ will rapture his church. That is, he will catch them up into the air to meet them. He will resurrect the believers who have died in the church age Together with any believers who are still living, he will catch them up and meet them in the air and take them to be with himself. He will then rain severe judgments down upon the earth, and he will destroy his enemies over the course of that seven-year time period. And at the end of those seven years, Christ, as we see in Revelation 19, Christ will ride down out of heaven on a white horse, followed by the saints, And he will finally defeat those who opposed him. And then Christ will resurrect any believers who came to faith during the tribulation and who died. And he will also resurrect the Old Testament saints. And it's at that point, when all of Christ's people have been resurrected, that he will begin his thousand-year earthly reign as recorded in Revelation 20. So, The way scripture depicts the resurrection of Christ's people, it depicts it as bookending Christ's second coming. At the beginning of his coming, he resurrects the saints of the church age, and at the end of that tribulation period where he's putting down his enemies, he resurrects the rest of the saints. And when he's resurrected all of his people, he begins his thousand-year reign over the earth. But we saw in verse 23 of chapter 15 that Paul describes this resurrection of Christ's people very generally and very simply as happening at the coming of Christ. These other details we fill in by looking at passages such as Revelation 20. Then we come to verse 24. And in verse 24, Paul says that after the resurrection of Christ's people... At his return, what comes? The end. The end will come when 
he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And as I mentioned last week, Paul does not tell us how much time will pass between the resurrection of Christ's people and the end. We know from Revelation 20 that it will be a thousand years. That Christ raises his people, he reigns for a thousand years, and then the end that Paul is talking about. When Satan makes a last-ditch effort to rebel against God, and Satan and his allies are crushed, and as we read in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, the unbelieving dead will then be resurrected, and they will be judged, and they will be thrown where? Into the lake of fire. It is then that what Paul says of Christ in verse 24 takes place, that Christ will have abolished all rule and all authority and power. With all of Christ's enemies defeated and with all evil purged from the universe, that is the end that Paul speaks of, when Christ will hand over the kingdom to his God and Father. So that catches us up, what we looked at last week, to where we are now. We're looking now at verses 25 through 27a. Look at what Paul says there. Verse 25, he says, For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In verse 25, Paul says that Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Paul there is alluding to Psalm 110. Turn there with me, Psalm 110. And he's specifically alluding to verse 1 of that psalm. This is a psalm where David is prophesying of a promise that God makes to his Messiah, his Christ. Psalm 110, verse 1 says this, The Lord, that's Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord says to my Lord, that's the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the verse that Paul is alluding to back in 1 Corinthians 15. But stay in Psalm 110. I want to read the rest of that psalm to you. Verse 2, David goes on to say, The Lord, again, that's Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter, that is the scepter of the Messiah, from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. When we get to verse 5, David seems to switch who he's talking to. At first he was addressing the Messiah, talking about the promises that God would make to the Messiah, about sitting at his right hand and being a priest forever. In verse 5, David switch and begins to address Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And this is what he says to 
the Lord, Jehovah. He says the Lord, this is a different Lord, lowercase l-o-r-d, the Lord is at your right hand. Who is the Lord he's talking about here? Well, who was the one seated at Jehovah's right hand in verse 1? Messiah, Jesus. So he's talk, the Lord he's talking about in verse 5 is that same Messiah. So he's addressing Jehovah. He's saying, Jehovah, at your right hand is the Lord, this Messiah who is to come. And what will this Lord do? What will this Messiah do? He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus the warrior king and what this Jesus will do on the day of the Lord, the day of his wrath, when he comes in Revelation 19 to wipe out his enemies and set up his kingdom. And he will win. And he will refresh himself by drinking from the brook by the wayside. This is what Paul is alluding to back in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25 when he says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The reason why Jesus must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet is because that is what God the Father has promised him. That is what God has ordained to happen. And there is nothing that will frustrate what God has willed for his Messiah to do. And when Paul says that all of his enemies will be put under his feet, he really means all of his enemies, including death. Look at verse 26. Paul says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Last week we read Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15, which describes the judgment of unbelievers that will take place after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And we call that the great white throne judgment, where the, the unbelievers are judged and they are cast into the lake of fire. In that passage, verse 14 says this, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the event where death itself is abolished. Death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. And after death is abolished, there will be no more enemies left to conquer. There will be no more threats to the resurrection life of Christ's people. It is then that what Paul describes in verse 27 will be fulfilled. Verse 27, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That portion of verse 27 is a quotation from Psalm 8 and verse 6, which we read for our call to worship. Turn back to that psalm again with me, Psalm 8. In this psalm, David is speaking of God's intended design for mankind. This is what God intended for mankind to do and experience when he first created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 8, let's start in verse 3. David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's the same kind of language we saw in Psalm 110. You've put all things under his feet. That's what Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. Psalm 8 goes on in verse 7, describing what has been placed under man's feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That psalm says that God has put all things under man's feet. And that psalm can be a bit of a head-scratcher because we don't see it being played out very well today, do we? Man does not have full control over this world. There's only two times, when you think about it, there's only two times when it can be said when man exercises that kind of control over creation that is described in Psalm 8. The first is back in Genesis 2 with Adam before his fall into sin. And we see Adam exercising that kind of control over creation when God brings the animals to Adam and he names them, demonstrating his authority over them. But then the fall happens and we don't see that kind of control anymore. The second time where we will see that kind of control over creation is described in the final chapters of Revelation. Chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 22. And that is when Jesus takes back what Adam lost. Jesus alone will make Psalm 8 a reality in our lives again. And Paul applies that psalm to Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? When that psalm is talking about man in general, it seems, why does Paul apply it to Jesus Christ? It's because Jesus is a representative of, of who? A new humanity, a redeemed humanity, where Psalm 8 will be their experience. Jesus is bringing all of this back. He is restoring Eden that the first Adam lost. And before moving to the final verses of our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to notice that all of this flows out of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection of Christ has guaranteed what we read of in the final chapters of Revelation. The resurrection of Christ has guaranteed our future experience of Psalm 8. This is what the first fruits of the resurrected Christ assures us. So when we celebrate Easter and when we gather to worship each week on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the day when Jesus rose from the dead, we're not only celebrating the certainty of our salvation and how we've been freed from our sin and from the wrath of God, but we're also celebrating Christ's future abolition of all evil. We're celebrating the coming restoration of all creation. Christ's Resurrection is the fountainhead of all our future blessedness as believers. It's a cosmic thing that happened when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
A couple weeks ago, in verses 12 through 19, we saw the domino effect of what the consequences would be if there was no resurrection from the dead. But here in verses 20 to 28, we're seeing the domino effect of the reality of Christ's resurrection. Because Christ rose from the dead, all of these things will happen, just as surely as he is alive. Christ's resurrection means that death itself will one day be fully abolished. No more funerals, no more tears, no more crying, no more being separated from our loved ones. That is what the order of the resurrection is. That brings us to the rest of verse 27 and verse 28, which is the goal of the resurrection. This is where we're going to see what our ultimate goal as believers ought to be. This is where we're going to see what God's goal in raising Christ from the dead is. Verse 27 continues, Paul says, For he's put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Paul is saying there that when all things are fully placed under the feet of Jesus, the Father himself will not be put under the feet of Jesus. The Father is the exception to all things. Now that seems pretty obvious. Of course, God the Father is not going to put himself under the feet of Jesus. Why does Paul point out the obvious to us? Well, I think if we keep in mind the analogy that Paul has been drawing between Adam and Christ in this passage, it gives us an idea of why it's important for Paul to bring this up, that the Father will not be put under the feet of Jesus. Turn back with me to Genesis 3. I want you to be reminded of what Satan, the serpent, promised Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3 records the fall of mankind into sin. God has forbidden Adam and Eve to eat from one tree. He's allowed them to eat from all the trees except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, if you eat from that tree, you will die. Genesis 3, verse 5, this is the temptation that Satan presents to Adam and Eve He says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it. Now, it's interesting that the you in verse 5 is a plural you in the Hebrew language. He's not only talking to Eve, he's also talking to Adam. He's tempting both of them with this. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, that forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Or you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. And we know what happens. Adam and Eve succumb to that temptation. Why do they succumb to it? Because they're not content to rule over creation in a subservient role to God. Instead, they want to be God. That was the temptation. You will be as gods, 
if you eat this tree. And God doesn't want that for you. Contrary to God's purpose, Adam and Eve wanted God to serve them instead of them serving God. That's what happened. That's how paradise was lost. But the day is coming when Christ will restore paradise. And what will happen when Christ has run evil out of the universe? When Christ has put down every one of his enemies, including death? What will happen when all of creation is firmly in his hand? Later in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45, we will see Jesus called the last Adam. And the question I want to pose to you is this. Will this last Adam try to do what the first Adam tried to do? Will this last Adam try to rule independently from God and answer only to himself like the first Adam decided to do? When paradise gets restored, will it get restored only to have the fall happen all over again? To have the curse wreck creation all over again? To bring death back in all over again? Well, Paul answers that question for us in verse 28. He says, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. In other words, no, it will not be Genesis 3 all over again. As always, Jesus will succeed where Adam failed. I want you to meditate on that because this tells us something about our Savior. Our Savior is a humble Savior. Listen to the words of Paul in Philippians 2, 6-8. through 8. He says there that Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Adam was just a creature who wanted to be God. But the son, he is God, and he was willing to take on creatureliness. He was willing to step down and serve God. That's completely opposite of Adam. Even though he is God, the Son of God was willing to take on flesh, to become a man, and as a man to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a man, this same Son of God, Jesus Christ, he will put down every enemy and he will win the kingdom that God has promised him. And on that day, at the end of that thousand-year reign, when all unbelievers have been judged, when death itself has been cast into the lake of fire, with the kingdom firmly in his hand, Jesus will not clench it in his fist. He will not decide to answer to no one but himself like the first Adam did. No, this last Adam, this Jesus, with the kingdom firmly in his hand, he will turn around and he will willingly and gladly open his hand and give it back to his Father who gave it to him. 
Does this not make you love Jesus more? The saying is that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that is true in the case of all men except for this man. This man, this last Adam, Jesus, is incorruptible, and he will gladly be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. That is the pure heart of our Savior, the humility that he has. Now, I'm going to take you into the theological weeds for a moment because I think it needs to be addressed. This passage brings an issue up. I want us to remember that Jesus is not only man, he is also God. He's one person, and yet he has two natures, divinity and humanity. That's what the incarnation accomplished. The Son of God, who is God, took on a human nature while retaining his divine nature. In this passage that we've been looking at, verses 20 to 28, Paul is very much focused on the human nature of the Son of God. That has been in view throughout this passage. For example, in verse 21, Paul speaks of Christ as a man. He says, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. Paul in this passage refers to Jesus as the Christ, which is a human title given to the one that God promised would sit on the throne of David forever, the one who would come from David's own flesh as his physical descendant. Paul has been speaking of Jesus as being dead and raised from the dead, which is something that can only happen to a man. And Paul has been comparing Jesus to Adam, describing both individuals as men who were representatives over mankind. Now, Paul, of course, proclaims Jesus as God and in other passages. And he's not denying that in this passage. He's simply focusing on one aspect of our Savior, the humanity of Christ. So when we get to verse 28, we need to understand that when Paul says the Son will be subjected to the Father, Paul is saying this with respect to the humanity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just as Jesus submitted his human will to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not my will but yours be done, so the resurrected and glorified Christ, King Jesus, will submit his human will to his Father so that God will be all in all. Now what Paul leaves unsaid here is that as God sharing the same divine essence with the Father, Jesus will, of course, share in that glory of being all in all, because God is not only Father, He's Son and Holy Spirit as well. For God to be all in all, all of God has to be all in all. The Son will share in that glory of being all in all to His creation as it relates to His divinity. But at the same time, as a man, Jesus will be subject to his Father. Now, how can both things be true at the same time? How can Jesus, as God, not be subject and be all in all together with the Father, yet, at the same time, be, as a man, subject to his Father? It's a paradox 
that we see often in Scripture. For example, turn with me back to John's Gospel, chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 17 says, But he, Jesus, answered them, saying, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And then we get to verse 18, which is a commentary on what Jesus has just said. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself what with God? Equal, equal, on the same level. Now turn with me to John chapter 14. John 14 and verse 28 Jesus says there, You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Well, which is it? Is the Father equal to Jesus, or is the Father greater than Jesus? Well, because of the incarnation, both are true. As God... Jesus is equal to the Father on the same level as the Father because he shares the divine essence with the Father. But as a man, Jesus is less than the Father. That is the glorious mystery of the incarnation. And the incarnation is why the Son of God can at the same time be all in all together with the Father on the one hand. And on the other hand, he can be described by Paul as being subject to the Father so that God may be all in all. If you have questions, just see me afterward. But if we don't keep that in mind, we can say things about Christ and about God that's not true. We have to remember what the whole Scripture teaches. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what it will be like for God to be all in all in his creation. Because we don't see that right now. Right now we see God's creation in a fallen state. And we see the crown jewel of God's creation, mankind in outright rebellion against his creator. So it's hard for us to imagine what it will be like when God is all in all in his creation. But thankfully we get a snapshot of that. Turn to Revelation Chapter 21. Revelation 21 on into 22 describes what happens after the thousand year reign of Christ. After Jesus has abolished all rule and all authority and power that is opposed to the creator, including death. These chapters describe what happens when Jesus hands over the kingdom to his God and Father. It describes the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth that God is bringing about. And I'm going to read this whole chapter, this whole passage for us. 
This is what it will look like when God is all in all to his creation. Revelation 21, verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, I am all in all. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, those were the bowls of judgment that will be poured out upon the earth during the day of the Lord that has been described in the earlier chapters of Revelation. This angel spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then John goes on to describe that new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven and be the capital of the new heavens and the new earth. I want to pick back up in verse 22. You can read the description of that city in the verses leading up to verse 22. But John says in verse 22, describing further this capital city of the new heavens and the new earth, he said, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life. You see, paradise restored by the last Adam, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, 
and they will reign forever and ever. That is what it will look like when God is all in all to his creation. And that is the goal that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intended by God to accomplish. So that answers the question that I posed earlier. What is the ultimate goal of Christ's resurrection? It is that God be all in all in his creation. And we have to understand that is God's goal in everything he does. That was his goal in creating the heavens and the earth in the first place. That was his goal in sending Jesus Christ to save us. That was his goal in raising Jesus from the dead. That was his goal in bringing you to repentance and faith if you are a Christian this morning. And that will be his goal in raising you from the dead at Christ's coming. And that will be his goal in bringing about a new heavens and a new earth. At the end of Christ's thousand-year reign, all that is opposed to that goal will be destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire. If your ultimate goal is something other than God being all in all, then you need to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Because if you are living for some other ultimate goal, you will find yourself on that day thrown into the lake of fire along with all the other rebels in the universe. But if by repentance and faith you have come to Christ for salvation and you are desiring for God to be all in all in your life, then you will not be disappointed by what Christ does on that day. He will hand over the kingdom to his God and Father. And when he does that, he will be delivering into his Father's hand the very thing that all of redemptive history has been leading up to. And God will have his goal come to full fruition. And it will be to our everlasting joy because it's our goal as well. And it's the only goal that will be enough to satisfy us forever. That God be my all in all and that he be all in all to everyone else. Let's pray.